Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. I will now be going into um, our Bible readings. The first one is Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. I will be reading from the NIV. Pages 489 and 490 for the Bibles that are at the back if you have not, if you've forgotten yours or do not have access to one. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The next verse is Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 8. I just read that. 26.19. Thank you. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give you birth to her dead. The next verse is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34. Pages 799 for the Bibles at the back. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are, we are then found to be false witnesses of God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for his life we have hope in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be in all, all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely you, as I boast about you in Christ, Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I'm now going to bring up our lovely Pastor Jacko and our very special guest. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Nick. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Simon, or people call me around uh, Jacko around here, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Uh, if you're a regular here, you know we've been working our way through uh, Paul's le first letter to the Corinthians. Um, and uh, along the way, um, you've heard a fair bit from me. Um, we've also had a couple of guest preachers come along. Uh, today is no exception. I want you to welcome warmly Dr. Chris Fresh. Give him a round of applause. Uh, welcome to City Light Church, North Adelaide, Chris. Um, you. If you're new here, uh, if this is your first time, I think this is your first time. Is in, it? Uh, I, I was here in 2016. Oh, wow. There you go. At, at the very first North Adelaide uh, wow. service. Wow. Like, so you're, like, you're original. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, Chris, your accent doesn't sound very Australian. That's true. Um, That's true. Can you tell us a little bit about where are you from mm -hmm. and a bit about your family? That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so from, well, now I'm from two places. So originally from Texas uh, in the States, uh, as of a few weeks ago, uh, now also Australian. So American and Australian. That's right. Um, yeah, so 
my family consists of me, my wife, Laura, and we have two lovely daughters, Zoe, who is three and a half years old and hopefully in the kids' room, uh, and Emma, who is eight months old, uh, right there. Yeah. All right. Welcome. Um, we, we had Dr. Tim Patrick um, here a bunch of weeks ago, principal of Bible College of South Australia. Like, he's your boss, right? He is my boss. Is that right? So yes. you're from Bible College of South Australia as well. Yeah. What do you do around yeah. the place there? Yeah, whatever Tim tells me. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm the lecturer in Biblical Languages and Old Testament. Um, so most of my time is spent teaching Biblical Languages, so I run our Greek and Hebrew programs, uh, and uh, I get to uh, just have the great privilege of teaching students, uh, those who are uh, considering ministry, who are wanting to go into gospel ministry, uh, I get to hang out with them and just read the Bible uh, in its original languages with them, which is a real joy. Great. Um, I described you on our Facebook post, I don't know if you saw this earlier in the week, as a geek who loves Jesus. Awesome. Um, I don't know if that's fair, <laughs> yeah. um, but like, so you're into the original languages, so the Old Testament, Hebrew, mm-hmm. uh, New Testament, Greek. Like, why? <laughs> yeah, uh, so, so a couple of reasons. One, because I, I really just am a nerd, yep. uh, and I, <laughs> I just, I love the languages, and I think they're fascinating, and I love language. Um, but, but more importantly, uh, because I really, I really value the languages, um, because I think that, um, as, as, as Martin Luther uh, once said hundreds of years ago, if we, if we lose the languages, if we lose Hebrew and Greek, then we lose the gospel. Um, because it is, uh, it is a privilege uh, for us to be able to go back to the original documents, to go back to the original sources uh, and, and read the Bible for ourselves. Uh, and so that's really important, especially for people who are, who are training for, for pastoral ministry, uh, to be able to uh, go and read Greek, be able to read Hebrew, to, to know what the text says for themselves, to not be reliant on someone else's interpretation and someone else's kind of cultural and theological baggage, but be able to be able to approach the text uh, themselves. Um, so, yeah. That's great. And uh, one last question. These are all unprepared, by the way. Okay. At the, right now, like... <laughs> What do you love most about Jesus? Oh, yeah. <laughs> man, well, uh, right, right now, because I've been spending time working on today's sermon, uh, I love about Jesus that, he, that he's gone before me, uh, that he has paved the way for me. So as, as we'll talk about today, uh, uh, Jesus, because Jesus went ahead of us, because he was resurrected, I have hope and confidence that I'm going to be resurrected, that I have life in him. Uh, and that would be impossible otherwise. Like, <laughs> nothing I can do um, to save myself, nothing I can do to resurrect myself. Um, but because of Jesus, uh, I have hope and life in God. And I've just been really just hit by that this week as I've just been uh, simmering in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So, so good, so good. Well, we're, we're thankful to have you here. The floor is yours. Um, welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, well, it, it really is a, a joy to be here with you all. Uh, as I said, uh, I, I was here at, at North Adelaide's first service years ago. Uh, so I'm, I'm a member at City Light Glenelg, um, or I don't know, are we still called City Light Glenelg? Because as of today, we are meeting in South Plimpton. So City Light that way. Um, and uh, so I remember when North Adelaide was, was being planted and, and coming along to, uh, to celebrate with you guys. And what's so awesome is that uh, I hardly recognize anyone in here. Uh, so you have grown, you've expanded, you've exploded. It's, it's wonderful to see. And so, uh, yeah, it's a real joy. So thanks for, for having me around today. Um, so today we're in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34. And before we jump into the passage, there are a few things I want to just um, say to, to set the stage for us. Now, I haven't been here for your 1 Corinthians series, so I don't know what has or hasn't been said. So please forgive me if this is all kind of stuff you know. Um, but we'll just go very quickly, briefly through it. Um, so just to, to get a sense of who these people are that Paul is writing the letter of Corinthians to. So these are Christians in the city of Corinth, and Corinth is a Greco-Roman city. It's a city full of Gentiles, a city full of Hellenists. 
Um, it's Gentile in nature. The culture, the religion is, is Greco-Roman. Uh, and so that is the context that Paul is writing this letter into. It's the context that the Christians there find themselves in. And Corinth, uh, in particular, had a bit of a reputation. It had a reputation for being a city of, of luxury, and a city of, um, of sexual license, se- sexual promiscuity. It was a very free, kind of liberated city. Uh, one of the most important temples in Corinth was a temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who, um, if you know, she was the goddess of love and sex. Like, um, so they were, they were partiers in Corinth. Um, and that's the surrounding culture. That's what the Christians there find themselves in. And so, given, kind of given this cultural situation, and given that the church in Corinth is filled with these, um, these converts to Christianity from the Greco-Roman, the Hellenistic culture, um, there are a few things that we see in Corinth that Paul is responding to that are kind of these vestiges of their former life. Uh, so we see that the Corinthian Christians, they have this, uh, they're, they're very much they fancy themselves spiritualists. They're very, very spiritual. Uh, things of the body, things of the physical realm, oh, those things are, are unimportant. But what matters to them is things like knowledge and wisdom, having special knowledge and wisdom. Uh, and, and the Holy Spirit, that's a really big deal. Gifts of the Spirit, really big deal. Um, they might even say that's kind of the biggest deal. And granted, the Holy Spirit is really important, but uh, they were kind of overemphasizing the role of the Spirit and underemphasizing other aspects of the Christian life. Uh, They saw the body, the physical body, as as being kind of temporal and fleeting, uh, and and because of that, rather unimportant. And this is kind of part and parcel Greco-Roman thought. Um, Greco-Roman thought, and I think actually Jacko said this last week in last week's sermon, um, you have the immortal soul, the soul lives on, the soul is forever, but the body is fleeting. It, it's kind of this meat suit that you kind of are weighed down by in the physical realm for now, but one day you'll shed it and be free and go off and float away as your immortal soul. And that is, that's typical Greco-Roman thought, um, and that we see, as, as we'll talk about today in, in our sermon, uh, is, is something that Paul is responding to, this, this uh, erroneous uh, assumption about, about what it means uh, to be human uh, and what the resurrection is. Um, a helpful summary just of, of the situation in Corinth and that the Corinthian Christians find themselves in is provided by one author, and I'd like to read it. It's just very helpful in, in summarizing all of this. Uh, They write, each of the community problems Paul needed to address grew out of the Corinthians' inability to let the gospel message fully reshape their Gentile Greco-Roman lives, whether because they misunderstood that message or because they rejected it outright. They were Hellenists through and through, and this eschatological, cross-centered, body-affirming Jewish sect called Christianity demanded that they enter into another theological and ethical world. It is no surprise that these residents of Corinth would seek rhetorical wisdom, be unconcerned with immorality and the preservation of the body, be infatuated with asceticism and spiritual empowerment, and preserve the distinctions between rich and poor. The Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. Ouch. The Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. I'm not going to ask whether that describes us, because that's another sermon. But the Corinthians, uh, were, as, as Paul talks about in the very first chapter of the book, they are called to be God's holy people, just like we are. We are called to be God's holy people. And so much of the book then is concerned with, well, are you actually being that? Are you living out that calling as God's holy people? Well, last week, Jacko preached on the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and um, just looking back briefly at those verses, because they set the stage for today's passage, um, Paul provides there a succinct summary of the gospel. 
And central to that summary is what we find in verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, make sure you've got them open to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be just hanging out there for the rest of our time. Or if you've got your Bible apps, have them, have them ready to go. So in verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And the rest of the gospel exposition in verses 5 to 8 is based entirely on the reality of a resurrected Jesus. Only a resurrected Jesus could appear to Cephas. Only a resurrected Jesus could appear to the twelve. Only a resurrected Jesus could appear to the brothers and the sisters. Only a resurrected Jesus could appear to James. Only a resurrected Jesus could appear to the rest of the apostles. And only a resurrected Jesus could finally appear to Paul. So we cannot overemphasize the the importance and the centrality of Christ's physical resurrection to the gospel. Simply put, without Christ's physical resurrection, there is no gospel. And so Paul, in his summary of the gospel, rightly emphasizes that resurrection is a key to it. But why? Why here in the letter to the Corinthians? The Corinthians have got a lot of very practical problems that need sorting out. As we read through the book, we see that the Christians in Corinth uh, are obsessed with having their own special knowledge and wisdom. They are incredibly factious. They're engaging in rampant sexual immorality. They are dealing with idolatry. There are a plethora of issues in their corporate worship that need to be figured out. So why does Paul all of a sudden switch gears to a lesson, a doctrine lesson, on the gospel and resurrection? You see, the Corinthian Christians had heard the gospel message. They believed the gospel message. They believed in Christ's resurrection. But as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, what they didn't believe was in the resurrection of anyone else the physical resurrection of those who have put their faith and hope in Christ. For them, it was all well and good to believe in Christ's resurrection, but apparently when it came to anyone else, anyone beyond that, that was just kind of, uh, they, they were incredulous. That was just too much. And you may think, well, does it, does it really matter? Does it really matter what the Corinthians thought about the resurrection of the body, whether we would be resurrected or not resurrected? Won't it all work out in the end, one way or another? And besides, if they believe that Jesus rose, well, don't they have kind of that that most important piece of doctrine sorted? Like, don't they have their theology sorted? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34, Paul tells us exactly why it really, really does matter. So here's here's the big idea of Romans, Romans, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34. What we think about our resurrection matters. It matters because our resurrection is necessarily and intrinsically tied to Christ's resurrection, and Christ's resurrection is central to the gospel message. If there is no resurrection, there is no good news. What we think about our resurrection matters because we as Christians, as God's ambassadors, we are to be truth-tellers. We are to be God's representatives to the world. What we think about our resurrection matters because our resurrection points us to honor and worship Jesus, the king who has conquered sin and death. And what we think about our resurrection matters because it affects what we do with our bodies now. So we'll see how all of this uh, comes up over and over again throughout these verses. So let's get into it. Uh, We're going to start with uh, verses 12 to 19. And in verses 12 to 19, Paul makes a very simple argument. No resurrection, no gospel, no hope. And so Paul begins in verse 12 with common ground. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, this is something we can all agree on. If it has been preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. Yep, we are all on the same page. The Corinthians believed the gospel message. So Paul uses this common ground to illustrate that the, the Corinthians have not thought through their logic. If Christ was raised, Paul says in verses 12 and 13, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
Paul's point is simple. The Corinthians' logic has a massive hole in it. Remember, the, the, the common belief in Greco-Roman culture was that the soul was immortal, but the body was temporal. It was fleeting. Bodily resurrection was not a widely held belief by any stretch. And this influenced the Corinthians' thinking. They did not think the dead would be raised. And yet, and yet, they hold to the Christian doctrine that Christ was raised. But that doesn't follow those two beliefs that the the dead will not experience a bodily resurrection, but that Christ did experience a bodily resurrection. They contradict one another. Jesus was dead. He would be a part of the group that we would call dead people. He died on the cross. And so if the dead are not raised, that includes Jesus. He was not raised either. You cannot have it both ways. Either there is no resurrection at all for anyone, or there is. There is no in-between. But Paul isn't done. The issue here is not just that the Corinthians' logic is faulty. The issue is that their belief that there is no resurrection of the dead because it was, the the issue is that their belief that there is no resurrection of the dead because it would then necessitate that Christ has not been raised leads to a complete dismantling of the gospel. We read in verses 14 and 15, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. What we believe matters. If the Corinthians are right, that the dead are not raised, then it follows that Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, what does that mean? According to Paul, our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. Some translations say instead that that our preaching and your faith are empty. There's nothing there. Without the bodily resurrection of our Savior and our own bodily resurrection, there is no gospel to proclaim. Without the bodily resurrection of our Savior and our own bodily resurrection, our faith is no faith at all. There's nothing to it. It is empty. It is meaningless. It is useless. So yes, what we believe about resurrection matters. It is the difference between a gospel message that, as Jacko put it last week, changes everything and is worth believing in, and a gospel message that changes nothing, offers nothing, and is ultimately of no use to anyone. And we'll keep moving through these verses, but keep Uh, what Paul has said here in mind and keep his claims here in mind because we're going to keep building on them uh, as we go uh, throughout throughout the rest of the text here. So as as I said earlier, what what we believe about our own resurrection matters. And our our first point was that it matters because our, our resurrection is intrinsically tied to Christ's resurrection. And we've talked about that some. We're gonna talk about it more because Paul's gonna keep coming back to it. But our, our second thing we said was that our, our, what we believe about our resurrection matters because we are to be truth-tellers as God's representatives to the world. And that's Paul's next point in verse 15. If the dead are not raised, then we are liars. We have given false testimony, breaking the ninth commandment. The gospel message has at its center Christ's resurrection, and by extension, our own resurrection. So if the dead are not raised, we cannot preach the gospel message. Paul is making sure that his readers understand in no uncertain terms the disastrous consequences of rejecting resurrection. It is not simply some abstract point of doctrine that we can debate and we can agree to disagree on. It is a linchpin to the entire gospel. Without resurrection, there is no gospel. And as we're about to read, there is no hope. And so in verses 17 to 19, Paul drives the point home. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Back in verse 14, Paul said that our preaching and our faith are useless or empty if Christ did not rise from the dead. But here the language is ramped up. Our faith is is not just empty. No, it's worse than that. Our faith is futile. It's futile because if Christ has not risen, then we are still in our sins. Yeah, that's a pretty futile faith because as Paul makes clear in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we are still in our sins, then we die and that's the end. We are separated from God forever. Our faith leads nowhere. And you may be wondering why. Isn't it enough? Isn't it enough that Christ died on the cross? Why is his resurrection so important? It's important because as Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification, God's declaration that we, his people, are not condemned but have instead been made right before him and reconciled to him stands or falls on Christ's resurrection because Christ's resurrection from the dead is the evidence and the result of him defeating sin and conquering death. As one author puts it, the crucial point is not just that they are believing rubbish about the resurrection and about Jesus, but that the new age in which sins are left behind has not, after all, been inaugurated. For Paul, the point of the resurrection is not simply that the creator God has done something remarkable for one solitary individual, but that in and through the resurrection, the present evil age has been invaded by the age to come, the time of restoration, return, covenant renewal, and forgiveness. An event has occurred as a result of which the world is a different place and human beings have the new possibility to become a different kind of people. This is what the resurrection signals. This is what it means. So yes, without Christ's resurrection, our faith would be futile And we would indeed be of all people most to be pitied because nothing would have changed. Our sin would remain and death would still reign. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, hold fast to the hope that you have in Jesus. Firmly cling to the good news of the gospel. Our situation today is not all that different from that of the Corinthians. In the eyes of the world, the resurrection of the dead is a silly idea. It's fanciful. And it may be tempting to to try to hold on to some elements of the gospel, um, but then also to let go of some of maybe the less palpable aspects of the gospel. And it may seem like a harmless thing to do. But, and as we will continue to see in this chapter, Once you lose resurrection, you lose the gospel. The loss of future hope entails the loss of present hope. So do not take your eyes off of the resurrected King Jesus. And we can't stop at verses 12 to 19 because that would be a pretty depressing place to stop. Um, So Paul turns things around in verses 20 to 28. So he's argued the negative, if the dead are not raised, then X, Y, Z. But now in verse 20, Paul proclaims the positive, that actually Christ has been raised. Why and how and what that means for us. So the first thing for us to take notice of is in verse 20. After Paul proclaims that Christ has been raised, Paul identifies Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And it's easy to kind of read on past this, but it deserves a few moments of reflection because to identify Jesus as the, as the first fruits has extremely exciting implications for us. Paul is drawing from the Old Testament practice of offering the first fruits of a harvest to the Lord. 
And there, there are two points to be made here. First, the fact that there are first fruits means that there will be more fruits. The first fruits are but a beginning of a much larger harvest, always, always. Like by definition, first fruits are the first part of a much larger harvest, that a much larger harvest is on the way. So Paul here, and as he will do again in a few verses, is tying our resurrection to Christ's. Christ's resurrection is not an isolated event. It is the first resurrection in a group of resurrections, and as such signals many more resurrections to come. So there is great hope here. Christ's resurrection entails our own. Because Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, then the rest will follow. A second point to be made here is when first fruits were offered to God in the Old Testament, those first fruits would be consecrated, which would in turn consecrate the whole harvest. You see, the first fruits stood as a representative for the rest of the harvest. Uh, we see this explicitly in Paul's thinking in Romans eleven sixteen. It's a very, very different context, but the, the first fruits metaphor is the same. He writes, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So again, there is great hope. Not only does Christ's resurrection happen as the first of many resurrections signaling our own, but we can also take great comfort that because Jesus has been resurrected and vindicated, so too will we be resurrected and vindicated. If it happened to the first fruit, it will happen to us. And in the next two verses, Paul elaborates on this claim that Christ has been raised from the dead. Since death came through a man, resurrection comes through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And Paul is referring here to Adam and to Jesus as what's called representative heads. That is, Adam, as the first human, was humanity's representative. So when he sinned in the garden, it was not an isolated event. It was not just one sin that happened, but it was a sin that affected all humanity, a sin that affected all creation. He brought death on all of humanity. And by contrast, Jesus, as the new Adam, as Adam 2.0, he is the perfect representative for a new humanity, a redeemed, a reconciled humanity. As our representative, Jesus has experienced and guaranteed resurrection and life for us. Or as Paul puts it in his comparison of Adam and Christ in Romans 5.19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Christ is our representative who makes us righteous, who goes before us and who acts on behalf of us so that sin and death will no longer have any sway over us. Praise be to God. In the following verses, Paul details how this will all come about, how it will happen. Well, first, Christ is raised. That's happened. Then, later on, those who belong to him when he comes again will rise. And then after that, the end comes. When Christ destroys all dominion, authority, and power, putting all enemies under his feet, the last enemy being death. When Christ returns, we will witness the culmination of the kingdom of God. Jesus will fully establish his rule as, as king, doing away with anything and everything that opposes his rule. And this includes death itself, the last enemy. We saw a beautiful, incredible picture of this in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8, the Old Testament reading at the beginning, and I'll read it again right now. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
As a fun side note, in ancient thought, ancient Near Eastern thought, uh, in many cultures, death was an entity. Uh, and death was an entity that was pictured as swallowing up its prey. And so here we see in Isaiah 25 that picture being taken and uh, kind of turned on its head. Uh, that death, the great swallower, is swallowed up by God, leaving no question as to who is greater. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That sounds really, really good. In the context of Isaiah, this takes place after God has set the world to rights after there is no longer anything or anyone opposing God and his rule. Earlier in Isaiah 25, the prophet talks about how even the strong peoples and the ruthless nations will honor the Lord. No cities will stand against him. A day will come when there is one king and one kingdom, and it will mean life and joy for all eternity. But, and this is Paul's point here. This day is bound to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is the inaugurating event of Jesus' kingdom. Because of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus will one day return in glory and consummate God's kingdom. Like Jacko said last week, Jesus' resurrection changes everything. And all of this, starting with the resurrection, leads to verse 28. We read, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Jesus, as God, hands the kingdom over to God. Jesus' role as king is to subject and destroy those powers opposed to God, but a time will come when that role is no longer needed, when the last enemy is defeated. And so Jesus will no longer need to serve in that capacity, and so God will be all in all. God's reign will be fully established and unchallenged, and he will be perfectly honored by all. This is what the resurrection means. This is what it leads to. Christ's resurrection is a promise for our resurrection and it is the inaugurating event of God's kingdom which will culminate in the complete establishment of God's good and perfect reign where there is no longer any sadness or death but only life and joy in God. So yeah, what we think about resurrection matters. Now, there are a few things I want to reflect on just briefly from these few verses before we move on to, to the end. First, I want you to know, I want you to know that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if you are in Christ, he is your representative head. And I want you to know this not only because it's true, but because of what it means for you. You have hope, confident hope hope that you will be made alive together with Christ because of how he has paved the way ahead of you. So hold on to that hope. Second, building off of that, let that hope in what Christ has and is going to do lead you to worship. Because what other response is there but worship? The king of all creation, the God of the universe has gone before you to ensure that you have life, real life, the kind of life that doesn't end. And he is setting the world to rights and one day will defeat all that has gone wrong in the world, including death. So respond in awe, respond with thanks and respond with worship. And lastly, just a little bit of a different reflection. There are political ramifications from what Paul has said. As one commentator writes, the terms dominion, authority, and power have concrete political implications. The idea that Christ is Lord and that the kingdom ultimately belongs to God the Father stands as a frontal challenge to the ideology of imperial Rome. 
For the inhabitants of the Roman colony Corinth, who walk about a city replete with statues and temples dedicated to the glory of the Roman rulers, Paul's words serve as one more summons to a conversion of the imagination, seeing the world as standing ultimately under the authority of another who will overturn the arrangements of power that now exist. Resurrection of the dead is a subversive belief because it declares that God alone is sovereign over the created world. Christian, you are not of this world. You are not of the kingdoms of this world. The nations and empires of this world are ephemeral. They are nothing and ultimately they are opposed to God. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your actions and beliefs and values ought to reflect that. Now, I'm not suggesting that we cloister ourselves off and we have no engagement with society. I'm not suggesting that we don't do socially responsible things like voting in elections or writing letters to MPs or any sorts of things like that. But we need to remember that our hope is not in the Australian government. Our hope is not in any political party. Our hope is not in the Australian military. Our values are not dictated by Australian culture. Rather, we serve the one who is sovereign over every dominion, power, and authority over all nations and cultures. And we would do well to always remember that where, to, to remember where our citizenship truly resides and to let our values, to let our loyalty be based there. And this actually frees us. It frees us not to act in society in prescribed ways like, like this is how conservatives vote or this is how Australians think about issue X. Rather, we are free to set Christ our king as our example and to model our actions and behaviors on him. In the final verses, Paul returns to the initial issue, the initial issue of the resurrection of the dead. And Paul again calls the Corinthians' logic into question. Now, verse 29 is one of the most debated passages in all of Paul's letters. And there are a plethora of interpretations as to what he means by baptized for the dead. Uh, we do not have time to get into all of those different interpretations, um, but that's okay. Because Paul's point here is not to validate or invalidate any practice that the Corinthians were engaging in. No, Paul takes the opportunity to make an argument where he sees a practice being done that is logically inconsistent with the Corinthians' denial of the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's not commenting on the practice itself, though it is safe to say that if they were baptizing people on behalf of the dead, Paul would not be okay with it. Um, Paul is simply taking the advantage where he sees one. The Corinthians are being baptized for the dead or on account of the dead. Well, why? Why are they doing this? That's a really dumb thing if you think that there's nothing after death, if you think that the, the body is just this fleeting temporal thing why? Why would they be doing this? So there's a logical inconsistency that Paul points out. And then in verses 30 to 31, Paul changes the focus to himself. Why do he and his companions risk their lives day after day if the dead are not raised? As Paul's already argued, if the dead aren't raised, then there is no gospel, there is no hope. So why would Paul continue to put his life in danger if that were the case? The answer, of course, is that he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. And Paul continues this line of thought in verse 32. He mentions fighting with wild beasts. This is likely a, a metaphor for just really, really fierce opponents, people trying to kill him. It's a metaphor we see used elsewhere, and it's, it's unlikely that Paul himself ever faced wild beasts because that was something reserved for uh, capital offenses against Rome for non-Roman citizens, and Paul was a Roman citizen. Um, but regardless, Paul's point stands. What does Paul gain in these situations? If the dead are not raised, why would he be willing to risk death? If the dead are not raised, and the gospel therefore is empty, as he argued earlier, why would he be willing to give his life for it? Now, if the dead are not raised, 
Paul concludes quoting Isaiah 22:13, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. If the dead are not raised, go and just, who cares? And Paul isn't just advocating partying here. Uh, in, in both Jewish and Greco-Roman contexts, uh, eating and drinking, uh, in, in this sense, are, are tied to immorality. They're associated with immorality. So if the dead are not raised, Paul argues, go sin, have a ball, go do all the sinning, do whatever you want with your body, it doesn't matter. And this, of course, is the situation that the Corinthians found themselves in. This is one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter, because there is rampant sin in Corinthian culture. There's rampant sin in the Corinthian church. But of course, it does matter. It does matter because the dead will be raised. What we do with our bodies matters because they are not temporal fading things the way that the Corinthians thought they were. The Corinthians, as made clear here and throughout the letter, had some serious sin issues. And much of these can be tied to an anemic view of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then there is nothing to hope for. And without something to hope for, we look to whatever pleasures we can obtain in the moment. As one commentator puts it, resurrection means endless hope, but no resurrection means a hopeless end, and hopelessness breeds dissipation. Without the hope of resurrection, without the knowledge that we will be raised with Christ, yeah, it leads the Corinthians to sin. It leads them to not live as God's holy people. So Paul counters in verse 33, bad company corrupts good character. This probably has a a double edge to it. In one sense, the Corinthians are the good characters that have been corrupted. They've been corrupted by the values and the norms of Greco-Roman culture. They've allowed themselves uh, to be tempted and swayed by their surrounding culture. They have given up belief in the resurrection, and with that, they've engaged in all kinds of immorality. So in one sense, this is a condemnation of the Corinthians for letting this happen. But it's also a warning, because the Corinthians are now in danger of being the bad company that corrupts others. In either case, the remedy is the same, and we find it in verse 34. Come back to your senses and stop sinning for you are ignorant of God. Paul tells them that they need to fix the problem and that that problem exists at two levels. First, there's the immediate. Get your act together. Sober up. Don't sin anymore. Fix that. Fix the external, the immediate issue. But there's also the deeper issue. The thing that led to their sin is their ignorance of God. They need to get their doctrine straight because doctrine cannot be separated from practice. And we ought to hear this too. First, what we do with our bodies matters because there will be a bodily resurrection from the dead. We, like the Corinthians in chapter one, are called to be God's holy people. So if there is sin in your life, stop, repent, get help. And second, what we believe matters And that is something that has become very clear throughout this passage. What we believe can have massive consequences on what else we believe, on how we think, and on what we do. And what we believe can lead to righteousness or it can lead to sin. So what we believe matters, so we ought to study up. We need to know who our God is and how he has revealed himself in scripture and who we are in him. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go to Bible college and get a degree, though if you want one, I know of a really great one down the street. Um, But it, it is important that we sit under faithful and accountable teaching. It's important that we spend time in prayer and in scripture, that we be in community with other believers who challenge us and aid us and help us to understand. 
And thankfully, I know that you all get that here. But if you aren't plugged in with other believers, if you're not in a DG, if you're not spending some time thinking about what you believe, why you believe it, and how it measures up to Scripture, then let me encourage you to get on that. All right, let's finish up. As I've said throughout the sermon, what we think about our resurrection matters. Our resurrection is necessarily and intrinsically tied to Christ's resurrection, and Christ's resurrection is central to the gospel message. Our resurrection points us to honor and worship Jesus, the king who has conquered sin and death, the king who has gone before us and paved the way for us. And our resurrection affects what we do with our bodies now. Don't be like the Corinthians. Reflect on whether and in what ways your culture and your subcultures could affect the way that you perceive the gospel and the way that you live it out. We would be foolish to think that we are immune to the cultures and subcultures around us. So be vigilant and cling to the hope of the gospel because you can be sure of your resurrection. Have confidence in your King Jesus who has gone ahead of you and who has prepared the way for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you great thanks. Jesus, we give you great thanks because you are the King who has conquered sin and death, the king who has gone before us. And Lord, we know that because of your resurrection that we too will follow, that we will rise with you, that we will be made alive together with you. Jesus, what, what could be better? We thank you for this great hope that we have in you. And we pray that we would live our lives accordingly, that we would live in light of the truth of the gospel, that we would live as your holy people, that we would live with the hope of the resurrection in view. And Lord, we pray that you would, that you would guide us because we are prone to wander. We are quick too quick to fall prey to our culture, to our subcultures, to be like the Corinthians, to uh, accept those parts of the gospel that we like and that work really well, and to ignore or deny those parts of the gospel that aren't as popular or palpable. So Jesus, we pray that you would guide us that you would keep us firmly fixed in the truth of the gospel, that we would build one another up, that we would continue to encourage one another to be your holy people and to follow you. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and it's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.